Let's pray and ask God to help us understand his word. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your mercy to us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for the Old Testament. Thank you for these last words from the Old Testament. We pray that we may learn this lesson of your final Old Testament word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last words are important. I remember a few years ago my grandmother's last words to me as she lay dying in a hospital bed. She said, I love you very much. Now those are the last words that I treasure. Last words are important. There are even sayings about last words. That is my last word on the matter. What does that saying mean? It means it's my final authoritative decision. No more argument. Or you hear about famous last words. Here are some famous last words. Do you think this will hold me up? Or, I think we're over the worst of it now. Why do I think that is funny, even if nobody else does? (laughs) Because we want our last words to count, to say something worthwhile. We don't want them to be immediately contradicted by our circumstances. People use their last words to try to say what really matters to them. That final wish, that final message. Uh, Last night, in my sleeplessness, I caught the last half hour of the Gladiator movie with Russell Crowe. And he uses his final words to say whatever it was, kill somebody and don't kill somebody else, but it was his, his final, last, important message of his last words. Or even people on death row. They're given the opportunity to say last words, aren't they? Last words are important and they're meant to count. When Nehemiah chapters 10 to 13, we come to the last words of the Old Testament. I know that it is somewhere in the middle of your Old Testament as you've got it there in your hands, but as I've said a few times now, don't be fooled by that because historically this is right at the very end of the Old Testament. This is the very latest thing in the Old Testament. Nothing comes after this. Here are the last words of God to us in the Old Testament. So what do you reckon God will say? What do you think is God's last word in the Old Testament? What would you say if you were God? How would you end the Old Testament? What would be your final word, your lasting legacy, your last word to your people? Well, let's have a look and see what God's last word is. Remember our context. The exile is over. Israel have been brought back to the land. They've rebuilt the temple. They've rebuilt the wall. But as we saw last time in Nehemiah, Israel is still in slavery. You may remember two Sundays ago, Israel did that that big looking back over their history in chapter 9. They remembered how God had been so faithful to them. He created them. He made promises to Abraham. He rescued them out of Egypt. He gave them his law. He provided for them with manna and water in the wilderness. And even though they... Even though they turned against him, he still brought them into the promised land. He raised up rescuer after rescuer for them and sustained them. God had been faithful. But Israel also confessed confessed that they'd been unfaithful to God. Right through their history, Israel had disobeyed God's law, rejected him, 
That's why they ended up in exile. And that's why, even though they were back in the land now, they weren't in a good way. They were poor. Jerusalem was still basically in ruins. And they were ruled over, not by King David, but by the Persian Empire. Well, here at the end of chapter 9, after they've reflected on their history, seen God's faithfulness, seen their own unfaithfulness, Israel say, all right, that is it. This time, we're going to do it. From now on, we are going to obey God's law. We won't make the same mistakes our forefathers made. We'll do it. We'll do what God says. In fact, they say, we are so committed to doing this, we're going to write it down and sign it. Look with me at Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 38. Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 38. Sorry, I haven't got a page number for you. Perhaps somebody will yell it out. 349. Nehemiah chapter 9. And verse 38. In view of all this, they say, in view of all this history that we've just recounted, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Then in chapter 10, you can see who signs this contract, this agreement. Verses 1 to 8, you've got, can you see there, Nehemiah and the priests? Verse 9, you've got the Levites. Verse 14, you've got the leaders of the people. And on behalf of the people of Israel, they make this binding promise. In fact, they even back it up with a curse. They say, a curse be on us if we don't obey God's law, as we're promising to do here. Chapter 10 and verse 28 is the summary, 1028. The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighbouring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand, all these now join their brothers, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our Lord. The Lord our Lord. Can you see it's Israel's last stand? As the Old Testament ends, here is the last attempt to break the pattern set by their forefathers, the last attempt to respond to God's faithfulness, keep his law, the last chance for God's people to live as his people. Well, Israel make three big promises. Promise number one is in verse 30. They say they're not going to intermarry anymore. They won't marry other nations. They'll just marry other Jews. Verse 30. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. There's number one. Promise number two is about the Sabbath. Israel promised we won't work or trade on Saturdays anymore. We promise we'll keep every seventh year as a Sabbath as well. Verse 31. When the neighbouring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or any other holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. Promise number three. Promise number three is about the temple. They say, and they go through all the different offerings and money and things that they have to do for the temple, they say, we'll give it all. All the things that are set down in God's law to provide for the temple will do. A third of a shekel for each year, the first fruits of all our products, will provide for the priests, will provide for the Levites. They say, we will not neglect the temple. 
Let's read right through it from verse 32. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, new moon festivals and appointed feasts, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we'll bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we'll bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our trees and of our new wine and oil. And we'll bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine and oil to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary are kept and where the ministering priests, the gatekeepers and the singers stay. And here's the big summary. We will not neglect the house of our God. So Israel's last stand, last-ditch attempt to obey God's law, we've, we've narrowed it down to three big promises. Number one, no intermarriage. Number two, we'll keep the Sabbath. Number three, we won't neglect the temple. Well, in chapter 11, we, we look at the lists of the people who came into Jerusalem. And remember at this stage, Jerusalem is empty. Everybody's out just scratching out a living on farms. And so what they do, they choose one person in ten and send them off to live in the city. The list continues. It goes right through to chapter 12, verse 26, right through chapter 11 to 12, 26. The point of it all, though, is very simple. This is the point, and it's a point we've seen before in Nehemiah. Nehemiah is making sure that it is only fair income, true blue Jews fair dinkum, true blue Israelites who are allowed to live in Jerusalem. He doesn't want any foreign influences in there. He hasn't built the walls to let all the foreigners in. He's built, built the walls to get the foreigners out. And then from chapter 12, verse 27, we're told about a big ceremony that Israel have. They dedicate the walls of Jerusalem with all kinds of singing, all kinds of fanfare, choirs, and it is a beaut day. A day full of joy. Chapter 12 and verse 43. We'll tell you that. 1243. On that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Big party. And as part of this ceremony, Israel, they, 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 they keep their promises. They do what they've promised to do from verse 44 to 47. They make their contributions to the temple. Verse 47 summarizes. Verse 47. So in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the singers and gatekeepers. They also set aside the portions for the other Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. And then verses 1 to 3 of chapter 13, there's a final purge. 
In response to God's law in verses 1 to 3, they do throw out all the foreign influences and things are looking okay. But it's at that point that we realise that we've skipped a bit of history. That dedication of the wall didn't happen straight away, as you might have expected. Before it happened, Nehemiah had gone back to Persia. You may remember from chapter 1, he was only allowed to be in Jerusalem for a set time. Well, he had to go back to Persia. And without Nehemiah there, things didn't go quite so well for Israel. While the cat was away, the mice didn't do all that good a job of looking after the place. Do you remember Israel's three promises? No intermarriage, no work on the Sabbath, and they'll look after the temple. When the rest of chapter 13, we jump back to the time before the dedication of the wall, to the time when Nehemiah went back to Persia, and we see how Israel fared in their attempt to keep their final promises. We deal with the promises in reverse order. Nice little chiasm for all the Bible students. Uh, we start off with the temple. Now, now, don't be shocked by this. If you've been reading right through Ezra and Nehemiah and you know this bloke, Tobiah, you will be shocked by what happens now because Tobiah, remember, is one of the biggest enemies of Israel. In fact, we compared him with Satan when we spoke about him a few weeks ago. Well, while Nehemiah is away, Tobiah manages to get himself into the walls of Jerusalem, not just into the walls of Jerusalem, he manages to get himself rented a room in the temple. Have a look at chapter 13 and verse 4. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, same one, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I'd returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased, as you would be, and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. Nehemiah also finds out that no one's been keeping their promises to pay money for the temple. That's why the room's empty and they can get some rent from Tobiah. And so the priests and Levites have to have had to go out and instead of looking after the temple, they've been out farming. Verse 10. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Remember the promise? We won't neglect the house of God. Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine and oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan son of Zakur the son of Mat- Mataniah their assistant because these men were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out what I've so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. Promise number three, it's down the drain. They've neglected the temple. None out of one. Now we move on to promise number two. Remember their promise? They promised to keep the Sabbath. Look at verse 15. 
In those days I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I'll lay hands on you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me, for this also, O my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Two down, one to go. Remember the first promise? No intermarriage. No prize for guessing what happens in the rest of Nehemiah. Verse 23. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and didn't even know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. It's good church discipline here, elders, take note. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations there was no king like him. He was loved by his God and God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we now hear that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? And now here's the death blow. Here's the death blow. One of the sons of Joiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. Remember Sanballat? He was the guy with Tobiah and Geshem, the Arabs, trying to stop the wall. He was the guy causing all that trouble. He's the enemy. And now the high priest's son is his son-in-law. It is unbelievable. No wonder then, back in verse 28, Nehemiah says, And I drove him away from me. Remember them, O my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. And so Nehemiah briefly summarises, he says he's tried to fix up the temple, but, but his final prayer is very revealing. Because like with all the prayers of this final chapter, Nehemiah's not praying for Israel anymore. It's a stark contrast to his prayer back in chapter 1, where he was, he was with Israel and praying with them and for them. Well, now he just prays for himself. At least remember me. At least remember me with favour. Verse 30. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. 
Remember me with favour, O my God. And there it is. The Old Testament ends. Israel's last ditch attempt to obey God's law. And the scorecard reads, out of three, zilch. Nothing. None out of three. Meatloaf might think two out of three ain't bad, but nobody thinks none out of three is any good. Sounds like my New Year's resolutions. Beginning of last year, I resolved to take up the piano. A year and a half later, Shuan, if you're still here, she's still waiting to give me my first lesson, very patiently. This year, I resolved to take up surfing. People spent hundreds of dollars buying me surfing lessons. Thank you to Carmelina and Harry and Krista and others. One day, believe me, I do still plan to take my first lesson if they haven't expired. Israel make three clear resolutions. They can't even keep one. And remember, that's it. That's finished. That's it now for the Old Testament. This is the very end. Israel have bound themselves with a curse to obey God's law and they haven't done it. I think it's a clear message, don't you? These last words of the Old Testament are patently clear. The Old Testament itself is saying, I'm not enough. Law isn't enough. Rules aren't enough. Israel won't keep God's law. Israel can't keep God's law. Israel cannot be permanently established in God's kingdom through the old covenant. And don't be thinking that if you were there, you would have done better. Israel is the best case scenario. Israel couldn't obey God's law, and certainly pagan Gentiles who don't know anything about God's law like us would have any chance ever of doing it. We we cannot make our own way into God's kingdom. We need a new way, a new testament, a new covenant. We need someone to bear the curse that we all have brought on ourselves for disobeying God's law. We need someone to forgive us for our failure. We need someone to allow us into God's kingdom as a free gift. We need a saviour to bring us to God. And praise God in the Old Testament, that's exactly what he promises, isn't it? We saw that in our first reading. God promised a new covenant. I've put just a little summary there on your outline from Jeremiah. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. What's it based on? I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. God promised a new way. And of course that's what he's done for us in Jesus, isn't it? Praise God. On that cross, Jesus paid the full price for all the sin of God's people. He bore God's curse on our sin in himself. And so God raised him to life and opened up the new covenant. Now you and I can come into God's kingdom. We can be brought to God by God's sheer grace through Jesus. So on your outline there from Hebrews 9, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. 
Well, that's the last word of the Old Testament. That's God's last word on the matter. Is it what you expected? It's not exactly what I would have expected. I think of God a little bit more like my nan, I have to say. I expect, uh, you know, I love you very much or something at the end of the Old Testament. But no. Why? Well, because God does love us very much. And the one thing he does not want us to fall into is trying to make our own way to heaven. As far as God is concerned, this is what he most wants us to get clear. This is what God wants to have us ringing in our ears at the end of the Old Testament. Here's his final word. You and I cannot do it. We cannot earn our way into heaven. We cannot obey God's law. We need a saviour. Well, last night as I uh, caught that last half hour of Gladiator and watched him die in glory, uh, perhaps I'm the only one who's been up late enough to see it, but uh, as he dies, he goes through a gate to be with his murdered wife and child. I didn't see the beginning where they were murdered. But they go off and they're walking through this nice green grass with the sunshine and it's all beautiful and happy and pretty and, and it felt really right to me, all smiles, walking in green grass. It just feels like the way it should be. It seems like the, it's what we expect. I mean, underneath, we are all really nice people, aren't we? Underneath, we think, even the gladiators, they've got good hearts. And surely God will accept us all in the end and we are really good enough and everyone will live happily ever after and we will walk in the green, green grass of home. That is so natural to us. That is, that is what is ordinary and right and feels perfectly the way it is for us. So do listen to God's final word here in the Old Testament, won't you? Believe what he says. Don't be fooled by Hollywood or by your own sentimentality. Listen to God's final word. Don't ever think you're good enough. Don't ever think you can earn your way into heaven. Rely on Jesus. Rely on what he's done. Accept God's free gift. And by his grace alone, come into your kingdom, because, come into God's kingdom, because that really is the only way. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we, like all people, are sinners who have never perfectly loved you, who do not deserve to be your children, who cannot obey your law, and who cannot be established in your kingdom by our obedience. Our Father, we cast ourselves on your mercy and grace alone. Thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Thank you that he has died in our place and borne the curse that we deserve. Thank you that he has paid the full price for our sin and now lives again and offers the gift of your Holy Spirit to all who will trust in him. Thank you that through Jesus we can be established in your kingdom as a free gift from you. Our Father, help us to trust in Jesus. Help us to trust only in Jesus. Help us to only trust in Jesus. For we ask it in his name. Amen.